Lord, that you would bring revelation of who you are, your holiness, your purity, your altogether goodness. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Help us to hear and respond to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Friends, this morning we're going to be um, looking at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And for those of you that are guests this morning, hey, you slipped in while we were praying. Good to see you. Um, while, oh, um, we just love each other and we miss each other when we don't see each other for a bit. Um, so we, for those of you that are guests, we have been um, embarking on 40 weeks of discipleship around the big picture of the gospel of God's kingdom. And we, this week, are on week 38. And so um, you're stepping in to the big story, and this week we're um, going to be looking at um, scripture that um, really is such an important teaching of um, God's word and scripture and um, has tried to be misunderstood and even watered down. And so this morning we want to take a close and serious look at um, scripture. And we'll start that by looking at this um, paragraph that describes this story of the gospel And if you'll remember from last week, Pastor Jalisa taught us about how that the gospel would be preached to all the nations. And then now this week we turn to um, Lesson 38. All people will be resurrected. Believers will receive new and glorified bodies. And Jesus, our merciful high priest, will judge the living and the dead. The righteous, those who have faith in and obey Jesus, will receive a rich welcome into Jesus' eternal kingdom, while the wicked, those who reject Jesus and persist in evil, will be assigned a place with Satan and his angels and will be forever separated from God and all goodness. And so the topic of today is Jesus' second return. As I said, it's a core doctrine of the church and... um, I want to call our attention to this message and um, call you to pay close attention. Engage your mind, engage your heart, listen um, carefully as we go through. First, I'm going to give a little background. As part of Jesus' return, he will judge, and the New Testament gives us scriptures about Jesus coming as judge. Matthew 13, 47 to 50 Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then a little later in Matthew 25, 31 to 33, Then the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him. 
He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then a little later in the New Testament in Hebrews 9, I'm going to read 27 and 28, and this is from the ESV. It's a little bit more of a literal translation. And just as it is appointed for man or humanity to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this is the testimony of scripture in the New Testament. The church through history has held to this, these teachings of Jesus and his judgment as vital to our faith and important to understand. In fact, every office bearer in this church signs a document that they support and believe that these teachings are true. And so um, part of the teachings summarized of the early apostles is in the Apostles' Creed, which maybe some of you memorized and um, perhaps quote in various places. I'm going to just speak about the part about Jesus from the Apostles' Creed, um, written in the 4th century. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, And born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Since the fourth century, churches united have been um, quoting and um, reciting this truth. Then the Belgic Confession is an article that was written in 1561. Again, church history. Article 37 says this. Then the books, that is the consciences, will be opened, and the dead will be judged according to the things they did in the world, whether good or evil. So, New Testament teaching about Jesus as judge. The church has held throughout history that Jesus will come back again and will judge us. And so then we have this picture from Revelation that we're going to look at today. And I want to just explain the book of Revelation is the Bible's climax. It is teaching us about um, Jesus' return, and it does it through prophecy, prophetic vision that was given to John, one of the original disciples, while he was on the island of Patmos. It's rich in symbolic imagery. And so that means it gives pictures um, that we are to ask the Lord to interpret and help us to understand. So he speaks to us through pictures. The interpretation of Revelation, there are varying interpretations None of them disagree on the content, the core content. More or less, they're trying to understand how does this line up, and it's more of the order than it is the content. And that's very important for us to understand. 
I am not in one short sermon going to try to tackle the various interpretations of the end times. What we're going to do today is look at this one simple picture and see what God wants to speak to us. It's a snapshot about God and how he interacts with his creation and with ushering, uh, getting ready to usher us in into his new creation. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at. Now, I said it's a prophetic vision, and prophecy is to encourage, to strengthen, to comfort us. So he's giving us this picture of scripture today to comfort us. He wants to, first of all, comfort the people he was originally speaking to. And so John was speaking through a letter that he wrote down, and he sent it to be circulated to all the churches because it was going to bring comfort and hope and strengthen their love in all the churches, so it's for all the churches, and they were being terribly persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And so what this letter did for them is it stirred faith, because it helps bring a heavenly perspective that what they're encountering and the hardship they're encountering right now is not going to last forever. And that these anti-Christian forces of Rome and the pagan culture at the end of the day is not going to win. The beast is not supreme. God is supreme. It also stirs hope in them. Hope that there will be one day eventual justice. And that restored peace, restored shalom would be ushered in. It's not going to be ushered in through violent power. But it's going to be ushered in through persevering and suffering until Jesus comes. It stirs love in them and courage to keep persevering. It stirs complacent churches to not compromise in the witness to Jesus and the truth of the gospel. God's love is such that he does not want to see people perish. And so it encourages them to keep persevering, to bring hope and to bring the truth to a very difficult context. So, with that said, let's look at Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, to um, see this prophetic picture now. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to go verse by verse and unpack some of this imagery. And so first let's look at this great white throne that John saw. 
Just the size. It's enormous. It's great. It's huge. And it's white. It's a symbolic picture. Why did they choose white? Because it's the absence of all other color. And so, therefore, it's purity, this righteousness. From this white throne, from this throne, this pure throne, would come judgments. A throne is for a king, for an authority to sit and pronounce judgments. They would be righteous, holy judgments. The throne, the ruling king. Who is it, him, that sits on it? John would have never separated God the Father and God the Son. And so we see that we can consider that it's the Father, but also Jesus, who's king, that would be God in his three persons sitting there for the judgment. It says the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. Why? Well, we know if we remember back from the beginning of the story of the gospel of creation and his good creation, it was tainted by sin. And the effects affected all of creation, not only humanity, but the creation itself. And so anything that was unholy, just all of a sudden, the heavens and the earth fled from his presence. And just that alone has captured my imagination this week. As I've sat and thought about this, and I've thought about how he created the earth and the sun to set the time. And so our orientation of day and night and days and weeks and years, suddenly that orientation is gone. Suddenly the ground is gone. Suddenly everything familiar is gone. And so what holds us there except his summons? He calls forth every created human being in his presence. And he holds us there, right in front of that throne. All of humanity is oriented as it should be to the king. Verse 12. The dead, great, and small are standing before the king. This represents believers and unbelievers, the sheep and the goats, the elderly and the babies. Somehow they're strengthened to stand. And we're all standing. We're standing before a king as one in a courtroom is ready for judgment. And it says the books were opened. And those books represent the story of our lives. Who will be the witnesses in this courtroom? It will be the books. It will be the books that reveal the story. And every moment, and every thought, and every intention, and every action will be revealed. Our works are the unmistakable evidence of the loyalty of our heart. They express our belief or our unbelief, our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness. It says, the early church said, our consciences will be laid bare. And I thought, you know, sometimes there's a fog and we, we even rationalize things, right? But suddenly the fog will be lifted 
everything will be perfectly clear. And there it'll be. Even things we've rationalized. Oh, all laid bare. John sees faith and deeds as inseparable. And Jesus did too. He referenced it. John 5.29, you can look up. Paul talks about it in Romans 2.6 when he says, God will repay each person according to what they've done. And James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And so, it's really showing what was our heart. Heidi Baker says this, She says, love always looks like something. If you have loving thoughts, your thoughts affect your actions. And so there will always be actions accompanying to love. And so the books will be opened. What? Whom did we love? And how did that get acted out in our lives? It'll be a great relief and a vindication for those who love Jesus. And one author said this. He said, there'll probably be surprises. You'll say, oh, I didn't do all that. What? Yes, whatever you did for the least of these. And I've got it right here in my books. The Lord loves those ways that we show his love, and it's going to be all represented there. Things that maybe you didn't even think about. Or didn't take time to think about except that the Lord just prompted you to do that act of love. To give that drink of water. To give that compassionate hug. Or to send that note. To go and pray with someone. These are the things that may surprise us that show up in the books. Unfortunately, there will be great grief and indictment for those whose love is shown to be towards the things that are unholy and evil. Some may have given verbal assent to a belief, but did their actions bear it out? And again, there's personal accountability for this life that we're given to live. What we do matters because it's an embodiment of our heart. And God's looking at our heart. Do we have a new heart? And this, um, we're going to look more next week at the evaluation of the believers who are standing there and the rewards that will come as they are evaluated based on their works. That's for next week. I want to get to this other book that it mentions, The Book of Life. If only unbelievers were present, that book would not be mentioned or needed in this judgment. The book of life is where the names of those that have been given new life in Christ are recorded in God's book, the book of life. We can see from this being a separate book from the other books that salvation is a gift of grace by faith. It's not works so that no one can boast, right? Salvation is not based on our works. And grace is absolutely serious. And it should forever bring us to worship and praise and thanksgiving and amazement and awe that our names would be in that book of life. 
We're saved by grace and we're judged according to our works. Now I'm going to go on to these last few verses that are sobering. Verse 13, it says, The sea, death, and Hades all gave up their dead. No one who has ever lived will miss this event in Jesus' return and his judgment. Everyone will be resurrected, and we've studied this before. And so everyone will be resurrected from the beginning of time. Everyone will be there together. So all these wonderful people and difficult people that we've read the stories that are recorded for us, everyone will be there, will be resurrected. And it says and repeats these words, each one will be judged by what they've done. And then death and Hades, they're both treated together as dark, sorrowful places of death and enemies of God are going to be sent to internal punishment in the lake of fire. And note that they join Satan and the false prophet and the beast in that place of eternal punishment. And that's just a little bit earlier in that same chapter in Revelation. And then verse 15. The lake of fire is the place where all unbelievers will be sent. This is not the only place. If this was the only place and it was a prophetic picture there might be a little bit more disagreement about it or concern about, does this, is this really true? Are we understanding this right? But friends, it talks about this place in Mark and twice in Luke and twice in Matthew. There is a place where unbelievers will be sent. Jesus' judgment is primarily viewed as the vindication of the Lord, removing all that does not bring him glory. And so this is a cleansing, a purifying of anything, because we remember his creation at the beginning was so perfect. And it's the contamination of sin and the brokenness that's resulted in all the heartache and the pain that the world has experienced. And so he comes to remove all that, is against and opposed to his holiness, so that we in the new creation will never have to fear this happening again. This truth evaporates all theories of universalism that would say there's many different paths and you can get to God and, you know, in the end all things will be okay. No, there's a certain way. And it's through Jesus. And Jesus will come and be the judge. It says there um, in the NIV, it says, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The ESV says it a little more literally. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And some people say, oh, well, because it says if, maybe that means there really won't be. Just maybe if. Except for if you go back to the original Greek. And in the original Greek, that's a first-class conditional statement. And it means if anyone, and you can most assuredly be there will be some, will be thrown into the lake of fire. 
And this morning as I woke up, I just kept thinking, what do God's eyes look like as he sits on that throne? What does he look like? I've sat through sermons that would want to imagine him angry, vengeful. I've sat through sermons that would want to compromise the truth of this scripture. And friends, I believe his eyes are full and pure of love and grief. I believe he's sorrowful. Why can I say that and why do I say it? We think about the story of the prodigal son and the father who was so broken and watching for his son and wanting him to come home. We think about First Peter and how he says God wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He's being patient. That's why he hasn't returned yet. He's being patient. He wants all to be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe would have everlasting life. They wouldn't perish. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I believe it's with great grief, but total holy righteousness that he pronounces this judgment to an eternal death, a separation from God and all that's good, into the deepest darkness. And as the other scripture said, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Pastor Dave said in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, when we are motivated by love, we want to warn. To give a warning is to show love. And so this prophetic vision is a picture. It's a warning. And it's God's heart of love to help us to recognize, first of all, that there is this day of reckoning. He stirs faith in us that we, he will come back. He stirs hope in us that there will be justice for every wrong thing that's ever been done to us, for the evil, the absolute evil of some governments, some empires, whatever is wrong and evil and opposed to God's goodness and holiness, there will be a reckoning day. And we don't have to fear that that's going to come back again because God's going to get rid of his enemies and ours. The evangelist R.A. Torrey said, No one truth is more inspiring than that of the return of Christ. It moves us forward with passionate zeal to the task that awaits us. And he was an evangelist. So we're being trained up to be disciple makers. And so there shouldn't be anything that would motivate us more than to know that there's this hope for the world. And we have this good news of Jesus that they don't have to be banished forever, but there's an actual healing and a saving and a deliverer that's coming When we believe these truths that are taught to us in our Bibles and we hold this as absolute truth, we're going to hit up against some obstacles as we try to speak about this 
to our neighbors. Because, friends, there's a spirit of the age, there's a deception in our culture, and it's bringing confusion and doubt. And so I want to just name a couple of the lies and a couple of the ways that we can bring truth as we speak about this. One is just this idea that there's no absolute truth. And so the lie is you can believe what you want to believe, and I can believe what I want to believe, and in the end it will all just kind of play out. Well, it will play out. And the truth is, we're all going to give an account before the Creator for our actions and our faith. And those that don't believe in Jesus are going to be banished. But for those who do place their faith in Jesus, there's this hope of being ushered into perfect, holy, new creation. There's a... For some... And I've heard this more from our younger people in the churches of the area. That there are those that come on Sunday and they're one person. And Monday through Saturday, they're a different person. And this idea that we can somehow make a profession of our faith and then live however we want to live the rest of our days is not true. That's a lie. Our entire lives are going to be put on display on that judgment day, and it's going to show, did we truly place our faith and was our love in God and his purposes? And so it really does matter. Do our lives bring glory to God? Another issue or an obstacle that we may face is a basic mistrust of authority. How many of you know that people are just really uneasy about authority these days? Yeah. All right. I, I, that would be an amen. Um, and so they really have trouble trusting that there could be an ultimate judge, probably because we've seen so much corruption in the world. And this can lead even to a great fear. But God doesn't want us to fear. And the truth is that a judgment is a determination and an assessment. And human judgments can be flawed. And we see that if the truth doesn't come into the courtroom, if um, witnesses lie or people truth is withheld or if there's bias or if there's prejudice, it can affect a judgment. But we don't have to worry about that when it comes to God because he's not prejudiced. He doesn't show favoritism and he sees all he knows all and he only and always is good all the time. And all-knowing, and he makes the right decisions. And so he can be trusted, and he's going to be um, trusted with judging. The truth of all of history is going to be exposed right in his courtroom, and he's going to make the proper judgments. Finally, there's this obstacle of this idea that there is no hell, or a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. Have you heard that? Have you sensed that, that that's a difficult thing so we don't, maybe we have held back on talking about this truth. But a loving God brings justice. His return and judgment is his vindication, as I've said, over his enemies and ours. And I think that this um, hesitancy to embrace God being a judge, in part, is because, and sending people to hell, I think is because 
If we just are focused on this one little part of the story, it does seem really harsh. But if we go back to, if we think about the visual gospel and how there's the king and that image of like the king and creation and the good creation and how sin was the thing that, and through Satan's temptation and humanity's sin brought all the brokenness, all the heartache, all the pain that came with sin and how there was this promised Messiah and how Jesus comes and lays his life down and the Father lays the sin of us on him and he takes our punishment. Then the new life and the Holy Spirit sent and we are given this opportunity to share the gospel with others and then he comes to judge. Then it makes more sense and it doesn't seem so harsh because actually what was harsh was the fact that there was this evil sin that came in. And the absolute amazing and scandalous truth is that Jesus would take our punishment. And so when we look at this one who sits on the throne, he's the one who before had stood in front of a judge. And he had been falsely accused He was holy and pure. He had never committed a single sin. And yet he laid down his life voluntarily to take our punishment, to to pay the way, and to make it possible that we could enter into this new creation that he was going to usher in someday. This is the judge that sits and will evaluate our lives and make judgment and unfortunately, sends some to hell. But friends, for us, it's an encouragement. It's an encouragement that he loved us enough to do that. It's an encouragement that he loves us enough to give us this good news of the gospel, to be able to take and share with the world. It's an encouragement even today to know that he's forewarned us are the books of our lives are going to be wide open. So that we know and we can make adjustments. I tried to think, what is an example of judgment or facing anybody that would have this kind of authority? And the only thing I could think of was traveling internationally. And as I've traveled internationally, I know that to get back into my country, I need to have the right documentation. I need to show that I'm a citizen of this country. And when we stand before, and I've stood before these authorities, it is a sober thing. It's a serious thing. You do not joke around. You don't make wisecracks. But yet, there's no fear Because I know I am a citizen and I've got the proof of it. And so I'm just eagerly, like, usually just eagerly like, come on, let's get the line moving. I'm ready to get home. Um, Right? I'm not afraid in front of these guards, these people, these gatekeepers. And as Christians who've placed our faith in what Jesus did for us on that cross, we're not scared at the day of judgment. We're in awe. We're amazed we get to finally see him, the one who did this for us. And we have this glorious eternity awaiting us, and we're just eager. 
One time, I made the mistake of taking a bag of um, oranges that we had purchased to the airport because, you know, snacks are expensive at the airport. And so I had these clementines in my bag for the airplane ride, um, did not eat all the clementines in my bag, got through to the point of going back into the country, and they asked, do you have any anything to declare, you know, fruits, vegetables, blah, 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 you know, whatever it is. And I, at the time, I was just tired, and I go, no, I don't have any of that. Then I get through there, and they're going to, like, scan our bags. And all of a sudden, I'm like, the oranges. Oh, the oranges. I've got the oranges in there. And so um, it goes through, and then they tap somebody, and they go, this bag needs to go over into that separate room. I'm sweating bullets. I'm confessing to my friend that I'm traveling with, like, I lied, but I didn't mean to, but I forgot I had those oranges. And I'm afraid they're going to even, the like, you know, you just don't know how much they're surveying you when you're in that space. And so I'm like, really oranges in the bag? You know, all right. <clears throat> so they go through the scanner. And fortunately, they did not have to call me out on it, and it went through. But I'm saying that um, if you've got something that is not supposed to be entering into the kingdom, um, it's better to just name it because they would have not kept me out and I'm not calling the United States a kingdom, but I'm just saying they would have not kept me from entering, but they just didn't want the oranges because the oranges were not, they maybe aren't safe. Maybe they're bringing in some kind of something into our country that would affect the orange trees, right? All right, so the idea, why am I telling you this? Friends, if we've got stuff that shouldn't be in our lives, we just need to confess it. We just need to get rid of it. We need to dump it. Just like we, I had to, you know, I should have dumped those oranges and I, there wouldn't have been all that drama. Right? At the border. And so we can dump that stuff even today. Maybe as you're hearing this message, you're saying, the books of my life are going to be exposed. Everything's coming out. I want to dump that stuff. And then I want to say, finally, that when we think about the picture of Afghanistan, and we saw those people running alongside and trying to hang on to the outside of a plane and even holding on to what ended up being they would be sucked into the wheel wells, but they were desperate for a different future. Friends, you don't want to go to the lake of hell. And if any of you are not sure today, you don't need to hang on to the outside of a plane. You just need to say, Lord, I believe what you did. Jesus, I believe what you did. And you can come into the plane. You can come into and have that assurance that he's going to welcome you just like he welcomes everyone else. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And he's been delighted. It's like the judge is sitting there. He's sitting on the throne. And I think, what is it like to be a dad and to be the judge And I just think he can't wait to celebrate with all of his kids. And so let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would sink the truths of this scripture and this prophetic picture into our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to bring you the praise that you deserve. Lord, that we are... You choose us and that you invite us into this new creation and that we don't have to fear this final day of judgment. And so, Lord, stir up worship and praise in us. 
And Lord, for those of us that maybe have some oranges in our bag or some things that we really don't want to have exposed, Lord, I just pray that we would dump it today. Lord, that we would just dump those things so that we could just eagerly look forward to that day. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that isn't sure that they are going to pass through this judgment and be welcomed into your new kingdom, Lord, if there's anybody that's afraid that they might be facing that lake of hell, Lord, I pray that you would just help them to turn to you and make this day the day of salvation. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing. You're going to be standing just as we are, if you're able, you're going to be standing. And on that day, we're going to all be able to stand before the judge. But we're standing early in his presence. And I want you to do any business that you need to do with the Lord. So as we worship, worship with abandon. If you need to come and confess, there's going to be some prayer partners available to pray with during this song. I'm just going to ask a couple of prayer partners to just come up here and be available to pray with anybody that wants to confess anything. If you want, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross, I'm going to invite you to come and talk to Pastor Dave or I. Even as we're singing this song, just come on down and we're going to um, be ready for Jesus' return.